Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome, everyone. This is your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. And today I have the great pleasure to be with Johan Furi. He's professor of economics and history at Stellenbosch University. And he's the author of a recently published book by Cambridge University Press called Our Long Walk to Economic Freedom, Lessons from... 100,000 years of human history. I'm very happy to be here with Johan. Johan, how are you? I'm very good, Javier. It's great to be here. Yeah, you're probably one of the first persons that I thought when I decided to get involved in this podcast. I'm going to tell you why later, but um, but that's one of the reasons why I'm very happy to uh, to be here with you and and to talk about your book. But before doing that, I would like to uh, to hear more about your career. I've known you for a few years, but uh, would you mind sharing with um, our audience where do you come from? Where did you grow up? How did you end up being interested in economic history? Uh, how did you end up writing this book? Sure. Um... So I'm South African. I grew up in, in uh, South Africa in the Western Cape, uh, not too far actually from, from Stellenbosch University. Uh, came to Stellenbosch, studied here, uh, wanted to be a journalist um, and because I thought journalism is the way to change the world. That very soon realized that uh, that's probably not the way to change the world and also that journalists don't learn a lot. Um, and I was really hooked by economics. So I did economics uh, until the master's level. And uh, then I had to look for jobs, and uh, I only had one job interview um, and failed that miserably at the last, uh, with the last question. I think the question was, uh, what is the difference between uh, theft and corruption? And I just, I had no idea, and uh, I still really don't know what the answer is, but they suggested that it's something to do with theft can only involve or can involve one person, whereas corruption inevitably involves two. So I, I didn't get the consulting job. And then uh, the university wanted a, a kind of a lecturer. 
And I thought I might as well stay in Stellenbosch. It's a, it's a great town. So I applied for that and, and I got the gig. Uh, and that was 2006. And, and here I am. I'm still here. Um, so I started actually as, a, as just as a lecturer teaching. Um, and, and my focus, my area of expertise was actually uh, international trade. And then I, I found this data set uh, of uh, 17th and 18th century ship traffic to, to the Cape, Cape of Good Hope. Um, and I thought that's kind of an interesting kind of trade uh, paper to write and, and collaborated with, uh, with a colleague and a friend and sent this paper off to a conference in Portugal, basically because, you know, I always wanted to go to Portugal. I thought it would be a great uh, country to visit. And at the conference, um, there were four people in the uh, room, in the venue where we presented, and those were the four presenters. So uh, it wasn't great attendance, and we felt a bit embarrassed. Uh, but then afterwards, there was a meeting for all the economists at this. It was an economic history conference, and there was a meeting for the economists. And I got there, and I met, uh, I kind of, you know, met randomly really someone who asked to send uh, him the paper, and I did so. And a couple of months later, he invited me to Utrecht University in the Netherlands, and that's uh, where I really discovered economic history. And so he suggested that I do a PhD instead of in international trade. Uh, I would do it in economic history, and that's really where I um, fell in love with the field, and that was 2008, Um, and I completed my PhD there in 2012. I would still teach in Stellenbosch, but I would travel back and forth um, to complete the PhD, and and really it was, was you know, it was a very simple question. The question was, how affluent was the 18th century Cape? Um, and I used various kinds of data sources for that. The wonderful thing about Cape research is that, or, or Cape economic history, is that we've got such a depth of and a kind of richness of data that we can use. And so that was wonderful. Uh, no one had really exploited that before. Um, and since then, I've, I've uh, been at Stellenbosch and, and you know, taught economic history um, and, and done some research um, in both kind of Cape, mostly South African economic history, but also some African economic history. I, I'm going to ask you more about your career in a bit, but I'm curious now that you mentioned that um, South Africa had this richness in data that had not been used before. Why was that the case? Was that like an intellectual tradition issue or like, I don't know, what, tell me about that. Sure. Uh, I mean, it's actually a very easy answer. It's the the Cape Colony was governed by a company. And so companies collect a lot of records because they obviously want to maximize their pro- uh, profits. So uh, we uh, certainly for the first 140 years or so, uh, we have since, you know, the arrival of Europeans in, in the mid 17th century, we have incredible data on the free settlers that lived here and as a consequence also on the enslaved people that were brought here um, and and that tradition really was continued when the British took over in, at the start of the 19th century so for the Cape certainly the Cape Colony later the Cape Province we have we have really rich data for the rest of South Africa not so much so you, you actually see quite a lot of variation in, in both the quantity and quality of data uh, for uh, different parts of South Africa, but but the area which I focused on had quite a lot of data, and, and that was partly because of this the fact that it was a company that governed us. Right, but why 
I mean, that's actually very interesting. I had not thought about that. Um, but now, like recently, why have scholars not paid much attention to that data? If it was, uh, I mean, you describe it as it was this threshold that was there and and it was not, uh, it had been first seen for, for, for a while. Well, uh, well, I guess it's partly true for most of African economic history is that it's it's often not the first place people go to to find interesting data, right? So, um, so that's the one thing. And, and secondly, it's actually pretty expensive to to transcribe these kinds of records. So I was fortunate in that uh, when I started my PhD, it was about five years after a group of historians had actually taken the effort and time to transcribe the probate inventories, which which I was using. Uh, but since then, you know, we've been applying for for funding, uh, mostly European funding, to continue the transcription of these various kinds of sources. The one major source, for example, is a tax census that that every year, annual tax census, the company recorded um, uh, these basically the the entire free settler population, and we have now, you know, for the last seven years been transcribing that we've got a team of people in the Cape archives doing that and that will allow us ultimately to basically plot the uh, income production uh, of um, the settler population over 140 odd years um, at the at the household level right so we can also build a panel and that's the idea is the name of the project is the Cape of Good Oak panel project um, and you know match these individuals across time match generations so you would not only be able to do like an intra kind of household mobility things but also uh intragenerational um type studies so that's the hope um and you know then you can match in all of these additional data sets like the probates like auction records all of these kind of things so it's really it's I mean it's it's really rich data and it's not that it wasn't known it was just i think really difficult and, and expensive to to compile all of this and it you know it, it, <laughs> we are very optimistic that we can do this but ultimately it always um, takes much longer than we we think it will and and the, you know the data problems of you know cleaning it and these kind of things are are immense but it is a it is a there's a great opportunity there for for scholars to work on that's fascinating and um, let me use that to ask you about how do you feel like how is it to be an economic historian in in South Africa, right? So, I mean, you have a very particular profile in, in the sense that you have managed to build this very successful career with an international school from South Africa, right? And but of what you're describing seems that uh, being there provides you all these advantages that come from having access to the sources. And, and so on, but um, I can imagine that it probably comes with some other costs. Um, and I would like to hear about that. It seems that um, every scholar that I've interviewed here has different perspectives on this. Um, so I talked to Piketty and he told me about uh, his decision to move back to France, for instance, and how that gave him the freedom to start writing books instead of articles, for instance, right? Um, I talked to Juan Flores recently. He's a professor at Geneva, and but has experience in Latin America, and he tells me how bridging like those universes uh, provides some advantages. Um, what's your experience on that? Um, how do you think about this? Um, 
How have you thought about that in the past? Has that view of it changed over time? I don't know. Tell, tell me about that. Yeah, I, I think I mean there's there's a couple of ways to answer this question. I, I think the one I the one thing I would say is that I've I've found the international community incredibly supportive uh, and and engaged with what we do, and that's that's wonderful. So. I guess partly the reason I chose economic history ultimately was just the the kind of interest that people had in not only my work but in in the kind of uh, work that we do at at Stellenbosch. So we've you know we've now built up quite a nice team of people that are interested in in African economic history more broadly, um, and and the international um, networks that we've established is makes it a really Kind of great environment to to um, to produce new and interesting research in. The reception in South Africa has been slightly different. I think um, uh, I think it's more a case of indifference. Actually, that's that's um, it's um, you know people are very much uh, stuck in their in the ivory towers. If you're an historian, you're a historian. Um, and in South Africa, we tend to focus quite a lot still on. On kind of political history for understandable reasons, um, but but increasingly also um, uh, I would say like environmental history and and uh, histories that are that are often quite distant from from kind of more quantitative economic history, um, and 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 in economics um, there had not really been uh, a lot of work in in economic history. Uh, there was an older tradition of economic history it was uh, you know specifically informed by battles during the apartheid era between the kind of the marxist school and the more liberal school um, and that's you know when i joined for example the society that really uh, that battle had still continued and and ultimately it was an older generation and and it you know it required some energy and, and dynamism from a, a younger generation to to actually again uh, engage with an international scholarship, which had you know certainly moved on from from those old battles. Um, so so I think you know in short I think the um, experience I've had is has been one of of an openness when I travel abroad and I present and people are keen to hear more about uh, the work that we do here. Um, the benefit of being here, of course, is that the sources are close by. Um, and part of you know what excites me about economic history is also that it attracts we can attract a new generation of scholars that that the students are here right and and economic history I think is a wonderful way for students to be exposed to many different types of subfields within economics so you can do kind of you know development type work but you can also do monetary economics and you can do public economics and all kinds of different theories that you can uh, that can that, that, that link up nicely with historical data that you can test theories using historical um, historical uh, data sets so so I think it's a it's a wonderful platform for students to be exposed to many different types of approaches and then also to launch for those students that are very keen to uh, Europe or to the US um, and and have their work read, but also, you know, find PhD positions or postdoc positions. Um, so I, I think that's that's where I think the nice um, advantages are of being based in Stellenbosch. Um, 
but it is, of course, also very useful to have a, a large international network um, to, um, you know, collaborate with to uh, attract funding and to to have a platform for your students to uh, to be exposed to to new opportunities. Yeah, there's something in your answer to this question that um, I mean, it's a feature that I've always admired of your of your career, which is this interest for for educating and this concern for leaving something the future generation, right? Um, and and this is a way to get into uh, your book. I had the impression while reading it that uh, you have that in mind, right? So it felt that you were recruiting souls to uh, be economic historians. And and the first thing that I noticed, I want to ask you about this, like what what did you um, what did you think about the book and the structure that it had at the end, right? So. Um, for those that have not seen the book, it's a book that has uh, quite a few chapters, and they're rather short chapters, right? Um, and every chapter begins with a question, right? So the, the title of the chapter is a question, right? Um, why did you design the book like that? What did you have in mind? Yeah, I, I uh, didn't think of it this way, but I've been accused of uh, using clickbait titles, and it's exactly what it is. <laughs> These are clickbait titles. Um, but uh, the idea is really to make it accessible, right? So I, um, you know, you're a second-year student, so this is this is a book based on a course that I've been teaching since 2011. And, um, and, and I know, you know, if you're a second-year student, there are more important things than, than reading, you know, uh, chapters of of your textbook, so it has to be engaging. It has to be accessible, and you know, I hope even some sometimes a bit entertaining. Um, so they are short; they're between two thousand and two and a half thousand words. Um, so the idea is that you know, before the next day's class, you would quickly pick it up um, and and read it uh, and get a sense of what the the um, chapter is about, at least. Um, but it's also kind of a nice disciplining exercise because you are forced as an author then to make sure that you only get the really, you know, the essence of, of, of the story. So it's, it's much almost easier to write longer pieces than shorter pieces because uh, you have to weigh up every, every kind of detail and say, is this really necessary to tell, uh, you know, a, a story um, that is, that is kind of, you know, attractive to read Um so, so I, I, you know, I, I wrote the book basically in in a couple of months, really, during hard lockdown in South Africa in, in 2020, in the start of COVID, and the and the idea was not actually to make this a book that's accessible for a more general audience. the The plan was really to just provide lecture notes for my students, and then when I got to probably chapter 20, the students enjoyed it so much, and they said, "Well, you know, this is a great book," and my my brother also enjoys it, and my father also enjoys it, and uh, and then I had a, a good friend who was in the publishing industry in South Africa, and she said, "Well, I'll have a read," and and she said, "I think there's a book in here," and uh, I sent it to three publishers, I think, in South Africa. Only one responded, and and she said, uh, "Let's do it." Um, so I never even thought of publishing it internationally. It was it's a very strange arrangement now because it's been published in South Africa. I then rewrote much of it. Uh, for the Cambridge edition, 
Um, so it's a it's a it's a it's a strange deal, and both publishers actually they had to come up with a new uh, you know negotiate a new uh, arrangement for for this to happen. But I'm very very happy that it that it ultimately worked out. That sounds great. I'm just concerned about the royalties of that. If you have to like, <laughs> you split have that with two publishers. You have a good sense that, yeah, no, I, uh, I certainly, I think the one lesson I've learned is not to, to write uh, uh, with income as a primary concern <laughs> because, uh, because then, then you're never going to be happy. <laughs> so, so it's certainly not, uh, it's not going to, um, uh, feed me, uh, but it's certainly it, you know it's nice to be to know that your ideas uh, are are read beyond your classroom. I think that's I think that also the one thing I would say is that it's 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 re- no one else could have written this book um, to put it kind of very bluntly, not in the way it's written, right? Because many of my own experiences actually inform this book. Almost all the places that I mention, I travel to them. Uh, it's part of the last decade of travels that I had. And so it's, it's a very personal, I mean, you don't need to know that to enjoy the book, but it, it is, it is actually a very personal kind of book. Um, and so it's, it's nice to know that, you know, I produced that and, and that, that it's there and, you know, uh, if a bus were to eat me tomorrow, then at least the book, this experience that I've had um, or experiences that I've had is kind of remains in a way that, that people found interesting to read. Um, so it, 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 it is certainly, even if, you know, even if only my, my mother buys a copy, then it would still be something that I'm, I'm proud of. Yeah, no, it's a great book. I enjoyed it a lot. Um, but you know, that's, that seems to be, um, a good perspective to approach writing a book. Um, um, I was uh, talking to Chris Blattman here uh, a few weeks ago, and he brought exactly that same point that you need to have a personal drive to work on that because any other like external type of reward that you were concerned of, like if it would be like money or um, or fame as a result of your book is probably not, not going to come and you're going to be very miserable if that's what, well, what's driving you. Yeah. You, I mean, you are, you're going to just be disappointed. That's, that's it. Right. And so I, I think, um, the, my experience from publishing the South African issue first. So obviously I've had now a year of feedback on that and it is what I do find interesting. It's, it's very, uh, um, interesting to see who enjoys the book. Uh, and and what they enjoy about the book. So I, I get quite off, uh, feedback quite often, and um, you know now also invites to to events where I have to speak. And um, I you know these are opportunities that I would never have had without the book. And and they put me into settings and into uh, audiences uh, far beyond the classroom. And that's that's something that I enjoy um, too. So I you know yes, the money is not certainly something that that you should. That should weigh on your decision to write a book. Uh, although I think Chris Batman's book is probably going to earn him at least something. Certainly, Piketty uh, did pretty pretty well, but um, 
uh, I'm actually reading uh, Chris's book at the moment, and it is great, right? It's uh, like you 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 can see it's written with you can you know you can you're with him in Uganda, um, and and it's wonderful. I mean, they, I learn a lot, so it's it is great. So if you do have a story to tell, I think you should tell it. That's that's basically the point uh, I'd make, right? But don't go and search. I think for a story just to make money. I think that's a terrible idea. Let, let me uh, then ask you about the audience that you were targeting, or at least how you were thinking about this, in the sense that you begin the book with this um, interesting uh, comparison between these two board games. One of them was Monopoly, and you describe how Monopoly frames um, the, econo the economy or, or society as a zero-sum game, right? One person eventually takes over everything and uh, and the rest are losing, right? Um, and you do that as a way to describe how the world actually works in a different way and how economic history allows you to perceive that. And, and then you describe how living conditions have improved for most of the world if you have a long perspective of uh, of time right um but the fact that you begin with that uh, analogy uh, gives me the impression that you're talking to people that are not thinking about economic history but are thinking about uh current events and they're probably absorbed by a pessimistic view of the world which i kind of agree that dominates public opinion um I know that you're very interested interested in current events. So, what were you thinking where you were writing that, and why do you think that if the evidence of the long term improvement in living conditions is so clear and evident, and actually you can very easily relate it, pretty much, and by you I mean everyone, if they think about the history of their families, why do you think that it's so prevalent the pessimistic view? Um, on 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 that, I so I, I think the person I had in mind initially was my second year students, and and perhaps it's useful to just you know reflect on how actually young these students are. So when I would mention in my class this year, for example, something about the 2010 World Cup, which to me seems like yesterday. I realized that these students were five, six years old, right? They don't remember anything about the 2010 World Cup. For them, this is a historic event. So, so the experience that they've had of South Africa is of a country with negative growth. That's, that's their formative years have been of South Africa in decline. Whereas my formative years were exactly the opposite. You know, I had, I experienced South Africa of, in you know when I was at when I left the university, uh, or at least when I graduated, I never left. But uh, I uh, South Africa had a growth rate of five percent, right? This was a and we were we were upset with five percent. We were like asking why is it only five percent? We want eight percent, nine percent. So um, which is you know ref, you know looking back quite silly uh, quite silly thing to do, but still that was the kind of optimism we had of the future of South Africa. So, so I think uh, my audience is the current generation of South Africans. That was the initial plan, is to, to, to tell them, listen, this is not how things need to be. 
they can be very different. In fact, South Africa, when I kind of entered high school, was a place of quite a lot of pessimism. Right? The, the, just before the democracy, um, there was talk of civil war, there was mass poverty, poor education system, all the things that we, we, we uh, now again um, are wondering about. Um, that was certainly the case, high inflation, uh, high debt uh, to GDP. And, and within basically 10, 15 years, we managed to shift the country completely into the opposite direction. Right? The things were improving. It was, it was, we were building an electric car in 2007, right, before Elon Musk did so. So, um, so you know, that's the story that I wanted to tell. And, and, um, and then I realized also that, you know, perhaps it's not just a generational thing in South Africa, perhaps it's kind of broadly. And I realized, you know, the more you read and you would know this, that there is quite a lot of pessimism globally. And of course, COVID, you know, contributed to that. So they, I understand why people are pessimistic, but you cannot be an economic historian and not be an optimist. Like it's, 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 I mean, it's almost impossible, right? So, and then I think that message got lost, right? It's very difficult to tell sometimes an optimistic story, but, but the way I also phrase it, I think, is to say, well, just, you know, look at some of these famous people that we, that we know. Most of them actually became famous or, you know, uh, we, when we think about the entrepreneurs, the famous ones, because they invested during tough times, right? Um, Henry Freak is the great, you know, story in the book where, you know, he invests, he buys up all these um, coke plants uh, during a, a massive recession. Right? And so... I think those are the kinds of hopeful messages that I want to convey um, during a time like this. And then the final thing I'll say about the kind of optimism, pessimism story is that I also find, perhaps this is a slightly more contentious topic, but I also find that that there are certain faculties, certainly, uh, you know, at Stellenbosch, but I'm, I suspect across South Africa and maybe even internationally, where a pessimistic view of this of the world is is told or taught to students, right? So I would teach guest lectures in our history faculty um, also to second-year students. And then afterwards, students would come to me and say, why have we never heard this story before? And I'm just, you know, flabbergasted that you would be at a university in the humanities faculty where you would not know anything about what happened the last 200 years, the Industrial Revolution and its consequences. So... Um, so that to me is, you know, this, this amazing story of progress, of, of, of longer lives, better lives. Uh, you know, we might, some might even say more meaningful lives uh, because we can afford to, you know, we can afford to have uh, investments that protect the environment and all of these kind of things. So, but that story is never told. It's only the kind of opposite, the story of exploitation, um, uh, expropriation that is, that is often told in, in those Faculties. Now I'm, now, I'm not saying again that that's that shouldn't be taught. Of course, there's there's room for diverse views, but but not to be engaged with uh, the the positive, empirically sound uh, view of the last 200 years. I think is problematic. And so, hopefully, I also you know my my hope was that the book would would fill partly fill that gap as well. Yeah, that that's a fascinating observation that I hadn't had. Um about before the idea which i i mean i sort of perceive something similar that in a certain way economies have become this sort of optimistic uh community 
which is kind of funny if you think about the origins of the discipline, right? That it had this reputation for being a, um, a somber um, type of, um, uh, of research, right? Um, that's great. Let, let's talk a bit about that. And, and with this, I want to um, open the, 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 the box of, uh, of African history, right? So you describe, and I, I had the quote here, the book is unashamedly written from South Africa, from a South African and African perspective, right? And and I was thinking about what that meant. And probably in the US, people would say a book on African history is maybe a book of the Black communities that have been forgotten or something like that. Um, but whoever knows a bit about Africa, knows that there's a lot of diversity in, in the continent and whatever is the society, you can call that a society, right? Um, and I'm familiar, for instance, with uh, what is done in North Africa, which is something that is probably more connected to the Middle Eastern traditions and Islamic studies. Uh, but I'm sure there's much more diversity even in Sub-Saharan Africa, right? So in development economics, people talk regularly about Sub-Saharan Africa as if that was one thing. Um, but how do you, so I guess my question for you is how did you approach that issue, right? How, what did it mean for you to have an African perspective uh, considering all this diversity? How were you thinking about that and how do you deal with that when you're uh, doing your pursuing your own research. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question, and it's it's something that I've I've thought a lot about. Uh, also, because you know I'm, conf- I'm I have African students in my class. Uh, almost all of them are African students, and so it's it's important to actually teach um, you know global economic history that is relevant to African students. So, so what I'll say is that, you know, there are great texts out there on global economic history. There's also several recent books that I'm sure you you will also cover. Um, but almost all of, all, all of these books are, you know, push Africa to, to towards the end of the book. So it's like, it's almost like an afterthought, right? So if Africa is engaged with, and, and I must say, you know, the more recent books do engage more with Africa, but it's often, you know, it starts with the slave trades, focus on colonialism, and and maybe a little bit of the independence period. Um, and and it then also what I should add is that it it typically just uh, cites um, uh, you know the, the papers that have been written by by you know top economists at, at the leading economics departments. And I thought you know a book on global economic history should start in Africa because in fact this is you know where you know humanity began and and humans immigrated uh, exited Africa um, and and it should end with Africa right so the, the future of the continent and then also within South Africa which is which is the focus of, of um, you know my own own work um, and so if you frame a book like that um, and then you know have not only one chapter focused on Africa or maybe two uh, but actually you know half of the book, or at least a third of the book uh, focused on South Africa or African topics, then that's a completely different perspective um, on how we view global economic history. And suddenly, you know, slavery at the Cape is given one chapter, 
uh, as is the Industrial Revolution or the Protestant Reformation. And, and so the weights of, that you assign to different themes, it's not to say that obviously slavery at the Cape has the same impact globally than the Industrial Revolution, but it does give you a different sense of the types of things that uh, that happened and, and um, that could uh, um, influence the kind of uh, the way we think about global economic history. So, um, so there are chapters on, for example, pre-colonial African systems, right? Which, which you know, most most studies or most uh, books, um, comprehensive kind of books of global economic history, we only focus, as I mentioned, on on the slave trade or begin focusing on Africa when the slave trade happened. Of course, there is a chapter on the slave trade, and of course, there is a chapter on colonialism. But there's also chapters that uh, reflect other parts, like industrialization in South Africa, for example. So it's you know these are stories that we are, that are not typically part of global economic history stories. But I think it's it shows different aspects of uh, of African history that are uh, that are important. Or as you mentioned, right, the um, uh, the uh, North African history conquest of Islam uh, is typically not something that is covered uh, in many of these courses, but have you know, immense importance for, for global history. It's like, it's, it's certainly something that cannot just be pushed to a footnote, um, which, which is often the case. Um, so I must say, it's not an African history book, right? So this, it's not, uh, it's a book on global economic history. And the focus obviously is on different kind of global episodes and the focus is on economic history. So there's much, obviously, diversity and, and rich scholarship on African history, um, and again, there you would focus on social history, political history, environmental history, demographic history, a lot of really interesting subfields. Um, my focus is on, on bringing to the fore aspects that affect um, our understanding of economic history. And I think part of that is to say many of the things that happened in African economic history is, uh, in African history actually, is underpinned by economic factors. Um, so when we think of slavery, what is the economic roots of that? Or when we think of colonialism, right? There's, there are great, there's great recent papers that show, you know, the terms of trade being very high just before uh, the scramble for Africa started, right? That gives an economic cause for why we we observed the scramble when we did. Um, so, so those are things, I think, that are things that help us understand the world in a better way, in a, in a more comprehensive way than perhaps when we just focus on political you know, events or revolutions, uh, we might create our own um, causes um, when in fact we miss the kind of the more fundamental things. So that's really the kind of um, the reason I think focusing more on Africa helps us understand the world in a better way. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. How do you think that, um, or I guess, how much do you think that we need to come up with new concepts or frameworks to think about um, African history? And I'm, I'm motivating 
this, or I was motivated to ask you about this because you have a chapter in which you uh, make a parallel on, on feudalism in Europe and, and feudalism in, in, in Africa, right? Um, and I have this complaint regularly in the Latin American context when people talk about feudalism. So many people describe Mexican or Colombian current uh, um, economic systems as feudal. And I get a cringe. I'm like, I mean, like there's something that it's feudalism and there are other things that, uh, I mean, there's probably a bunch of parallels that you could build, but these are different type of institutions if you want, right? Um, I don't know for the African case, I can imagine that uh, the, the similarities are stronger, but um but how much do you think that uh, Africa has singularities that require different type of either concepts or tools to be studied? How concerned are you about that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a great question. My, I think, uh, hope is that that we approach the study of these in, informal, formal institutions in many African countries, but you know, I'll focus on South Africa because that's that's the one I'm more familiar with. We have a, a third of South Africans, for example, live still in the former homelands, right? That was created during apartheid, and um, and even though these borders have now been relaxed, there's free movement. We still find high concentrations of South Africa there, and they are by far the poorest areas. And it's partly because the they are the sets of institutions that you know basically pre-colonial institutions that persisted into the present and that are now legalized and, and, and institutionalized uh, by, you know, it was done just after democracy in 1994. Um, and these are very, I mean, there's reason why these areas remain poor. And so that's partly what I hope to show with that chapter is that, sure, you might not call them feudal institutions, but they certainly reflect many of the incentives of feudalism. Um, and, Studying feudalism is not something that we do just because we care about the middle, uh, you know, the Middle Ages um, in Europe. It's because we underst- we want to st- understand these institutions and the kinds of incentives that these institutions create and apply them in in contexts where they are still relevant, right? So, and it might not even be the homelands, right? You can think of a a, a great institution that are always using class is our institute for for accountants, right? They, I mean, that's a, that's a guild, right? That, that, and, and we can learn from the theory of guilds as to what the likely outcomes are, right, in the accounting profession in South Africa um, if we, you know, just were to analyze it with the same types of, of tools and, and approaches. So, so I think they, I mean, partly it's to motivate why we should study these, these um, feudal institutions. And secondly, to say that... Um, you know, if, if we understand the, the potential consequences, we might actually reinvent them or redesign them to have the kind of, you know, better outcomes that we, that we hope for and, and not be surprised when these former homelands, for example, remain poor or the salaries of accountants, you know, remain very high and all of these kind of things that we, that we seemingly would, might want to change, but ultimately... Uh, we don't understand the, the roots of it. Mm, I mean, now that you mentioned pre-colonial institutions, and, and I think that your book, like the subtitle of your book is uh, 
lessons from a hundred thousand years or so on. You you do have a very long term perspective, and you try to bring that into the book. Um, and that uh, contrasts with most of the way in which Africa has been seen before. That emphasizes the role of colonialism. And so I want to ask you about that. Like, how do you and Although, again, like you don't focus on that in the book. Um, I'm sure that you have these conversations regularly with your students about the role and the legacy of colonialism. Um, it seems to me that the Western world has an increasing interest for that and have a well-deserved uh, sense of guilt for for it. But uh, But that's a different conversation of how impactful it was for the long-term development of, uh, uh, well, of both the colonizers and, and the colonies. Um, and so I want to hear how you think about that. Of course, I'm not asking you for a very, like, structured, contrafactual, what would have been of Africa if uh, it had not been colonized. But, um, but how do you think about those ideas? I think I'll start with your ending there, and that's to say that I mean it's it's a useful question in social science is to say what do we do when we clearly don't have a counterfactual, right? So that's that's something that I you know not enough people I think are th are thinking about like how do we answer this question of Africa without colonialism? Right? It's 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 almost an impossible uh, counterfactual to imagine. Uh, simply because of the kind of the time uh, that it happened, and and you know, um, so so what then do we then make of of colonialism? And I, I think it's useful to unpack colonialism into many different types, uh, not only in, in terms of a taxonomy of the different you know informal rule versus uh, or indirect rules or sorry versus direct rule, but also in the types of kind of legacy. So you know, we are economic historians, and and we might think of the economic consequences. But it's really important to also, you know, just say that there are, of course, massive social consequences, demographic consequences, psychological consequences, emotional consequences that, you know, that I'm certainly not equipped to deal with and 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 think of, you know, what what they are and how they might affect not only the generation that experienced the you know colonialism but also the generations afterwards. Um, but in terms of the kind of economic uh, consequences, I think it's. It's you know I've in the chapter that I that I work uh, that I write about colonialism I I, I mention uh, Haldring and, and Robinson's uh, which I think is quite a, a nice chapter to, as a way to think about this where they deal explicitly with this idea of a counterfactual and, and not having one and and they actually divide Africa into kind of three types of of uh, colonial experience where they basically say two of the three they suspect. Um, based on various kinds of evidence that, you know, these changes that the colonial uh, uh, powers brought would probably have uh, happened in any case. And it's only one, uh, a third, a third group really where, where it's kind of unclear whether this would have happened. And it's, it's partly based on settler economies and it's partly based on, uh, I think the other split is like, you know, where there was a, 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 a pre-colonial um Uh, ruler and and quite a strong kind of state. Um, uh, so in those two cases, probably that those changes would have happened in any case with modernization, you know, with access to international markets and access to international technology. You would have probably seen some of those things. 
but the third case, it's, it's unclear. So I just think we, um, you know, so one final thought, we, why do we ask the question, I think is an important first step. And, and, and you know, is it to, to prove some, um, you know, point, normative point, um, which, you know, I'm not sure that, you know, whether this was good or bad, I don't think we can ever answer that question. So I think there the it's it's about our values, and there you know there I would be very clear to in in my view that you know the given the what I've mentioned about the psych, psychological and emotional consequences, my sense is that it's it's inevitably going to be bad, right? The question about the, uh, if it's a positive question in the sense like positive versus normative. You know, that's a more difficult one because then you clearly want to you want to measure the outcomes compared to the counterfactual. And given that we don't have this counterfactual, I think that's very difficult to to establish. So ultimately, you know, why do we ask this question? I'm not sure it's a sensible question to ask in a in a um, in a positive setting because I just don't think we can get at the answer. And when we ask it in a normative way, I think you know we have probably ideological or political. Um, reasons why we ask this question, and then it's it's not a very sensible question to to answer for exactly those reasons. Now that you bring this issue of um, normative versus positive um, perspectives um, in society, um, you you finished the book trying to think about the future, right? And in that context, you face the challenge of think about what the world is going to look like when whatever you say can actually change the world, right? So we're, we're building that future, right? Um, but how do you think about that? How, how do you perceive the future of South Africa, of Africa and, and the world? And again, I think this is a great way of doing uh, the entire conversation of your book being a uh, global history. Um where do you think we're heading and and what what it's going to like if you think that you would be able to still be teaching in 20 years uh, would your students still be pessimistic optimistic how how do you think that that's going to change uh, in the in the coming decades i recently wrote a, a column for a south african newspaper where you know where i where i said that you know economic historians have to the difficult job of being optimistic during bad times and during kind of being more slightly uh, negative, I guess, during good times when things are going well, when the Bitcoin price is going up massively, we are we have the job to say, "Well, this you know this seems very much like a bubble," uh, and and temper that enthusiasm. Um, and and when things are really bad, we also have to say, you know. There have been bad times before, and somehow we've we've managed to go be you know we we we've managed to go through them and 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 then up again. So so I guess that's where we are, right? Because my sense is that the world is in a very difficult place at the moment. There are lots of concerns. Um, uh, you know, war in Europe is continuing. Uh, there's global concerns about inflation. You know, there's many. Uh, issues in the U.S. and um, and Latin American, uh, you know, the political changes and 
Um, so, uh, so I and I think it is a it is a strange time to be optimistic, but there's also you know the faith in in the ability of human ingenuity. I think is is important, and and my sense is that if you read history, uh, you you know that uh, you know it, there was there were two world wars, and and somehow. Um, We've managed to, in the following couple of decades, vastly improve human living standards, not only in the rich world, but especially in the developing world. Um, I've recently seen Branko Milanovic's graph. Um, uh, you know, he's got this elephant graph of 1988, I think, to 2008, where he shows it's the, you know, the poor did pretty well, global poor did pretty well, and the very rich did pretty well, the middle class kind of uh remain behind and this latest one which uh, he recently uh, tweeted is between twin i think twin 2008 and, and 2018 and he basically shows that the you know the this incredible graph of the poor got incredibly rich or well they they that's a bad way of phrasing it the the poor the real income of the poor grew at a very high rate and this uh this high rate declines as you move to the rich and the richest, um, their increase is the lowest of all the different, um, across the distribution. So it's, it's a very positive story of how in the last decade, basically before COVID, um, global inequality was reduced. And that's, that's a, that's a, to me, at least a very positive story to tell uh, about the world. I mean, these are the stories that we typically don't hear, right? Because they happen slowly. They happen. We don't observe them very well. Um, you know, they are numbers, and that's not an, often an easy story to tell. Um, but it is. It is something to be optimistic about. Of course, COVID then happened, and so probably that meant that inequality uh, was exacerbated again. Um, but they are. I think if we if we manage to uh, not. Um, isolate ourselves, right? If we you know, hopefully don't move to a, an anti-kind of globalization phase, if we continue to be integrated, if we continue to invest in new technologies, um, it is very likely that the future will be uh, one where our lifespans will continue to to increase, um, our quality of life will increase, especially those that live in, in the poorest places in the world, uh, because they benefit most from these technological spillovers. Um, and and hopefully that also means that you know we have we can live more more meaningful lives. The fact that I can speak to you here um, while sitting in a you know two completely different continents and different time zones, um, you know, wasn't possible about you know a decade ago, and here we are. Um, so so we don't know what the future you know we 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 simply don't know. But if we are slightly creative and we and we imagine, then we can certainly imagine a better world. So my answer is basically, it's not inevitable that the world will be better, but it can be better. And that's that's something to hope for. That's a great answer. You would be a great politician, let me tell you. That, that could be part of a great um, political campaign slogan. Let me ask you one final question, which uh, I actually ask all my guests. Um, and that question is why writing a book and not doing something else, right? Like writing articles. But before, like letting you answer that question, 
Um, I want to tell you that that comes from an anecdote that I had with you. And so and probably you don't remember this, but I visited you a few years ago and you took me on a very nice hike, um, which by the way, for people that have not visited the Stellenbosch era is like the most very sciatic place that you can imagine, right? A beautiful landscape. Um, and we had a very long conversation where we were hiking um, and I was describing you a bit how I was trying to find a bit my path as a scholar or whatever and I was a bit confused as probably all of us are at some point and you asked me a question that like enlightened a lot like it was very uh, insightful how I was I was thinking about the decision you asked me who do you admire and and I gave you a few names, and to me they look very different to each other, right? I told you people that work on networks, other people that are economic historians, some people that are political scientists, and you told me, you know what? There's something that all of them have in common, which is that all of them have written books, and I had never thought about that, and that was a sort of revelation. I felt like you know that means something right i mean in a certain way that sounds like a very shallow feature you know like in theory anyone can write a book right but someone that in academia that's decides to write a book has something in mind right and in the cases that we were discussing that day well it seemed that all of them were scholars that were trying to engage with a larger audience that were trying to have a concrete impact in society, and we're not just trying to like feed a, a list of um, um, of citations, if you want, right? And and that was very important for guiding a bit how I um, was approaching my my professional life. So, and I've had that in mind. I think we never talk about this, but it, that was very very important in my life. And I mean this whole podcast about books right so um, tell me about that why did you decide to to write a book well, i first have to ask you so when is your book coming out that's uh <laughs> i hope that's soon and i'm actually right i have a manuscript so oh, fantastic. Gonna... that's awesome yeah, yeah that's great that's great news um I, I mean there are two answers right the first is very practical i wanted to give my students something to read while they're sitting at home worrying about the world, right? Worrying about the end of the world, because that's certainly what it felt like during those first weeks of, of COVID. And I have a very kind of, you know, a class full of discussions and, and it's just impossible to have these kinds of discussions online. And and so I thought, you know, I'll provide them at least with a text. So so there's a practical reason for why, why I did it. Um, and, you know, I had the time suddenly, you know, in lockdown, you sit at home and, um, I think, you know, not to irritate my wife too much, I was, you know, trying to keep myself busy. So, um, but I think the more fundamental reason is that um, my sense was that that students, but also the broader society, uh, increasingly are pessimistic and and have have lost hope for a, for a better future. And I just thought a longer term perspective helps helps provide that. And of course, there are great books that already show us that we are doing better but i think partly 
um, what I wanted to do was to to answer the question why is that so why are we doing better and that's you know help it helps to have some lessons from history and then also bring in you know South Africa and Africa in in, in those stories and um, and as I said the audience is actually you know that it was aimed at students but uh, it's reached new audiences that I would have not imagined and and hopefully now with the new Cambridge edition, it would uh, reach global audiences that um, would give me feedback and, and criticize. And, and um, but it's but it's been it's been wonderful to be part of 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 conversations that I would not have been part of. Certainly, if I just published papers, um, and that's partly you know that's the thing I've enjoyed actually the most is to be uh, is to be engaged and trying to actually tell my story to an audience. With very different priors, you know, which which don't use the same jargon, uh, where you have to simplify concepts, where you have to use language that is understandable, um, and also where you are exposed to new ideas. Right? It's not. I I um, I've, I was recently invited to a um, to an event where where the members of this audience was so different to what I was used to, and and they you know they are all entrepreneurs. They believe wacky things um, about the world, but they try it, right? They try new things. And sometimes, you know, one out of 20 works and they become fabulously rich. All of these guys were fabulously rich. Uh, whereas, you know, when we've got an idea and we test it in the kind of market for ideas, you're shot down from every angle. You get three referee reports, you know, on the tiniest little detail that you that you missed. And it was actually really refreshing to be in an audience with crazy, crazy ideas and... And just think, you know, you know, these guys, they made it. And um, and what can I learn from them? Right? What is it about them? What is it about these ideas that that I can, that uh, you know, not maybe even for my academic work, but just in general, like in life, what do we, what is it that they have that 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 uh, can help me, um, you know, build or, or kind of build a better build a better life and a more meaningful life for myself. So I think that 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 was quite nice. That is quite nice. And. and um, that engagement is something that, I, that I've enjoyed a lot. So hopefully that will continue going forward. That's great. That's great. You know, the funny thing is that <clears throat> my work recently and the book is going to be a very pessimistic one is going to be on why societies collapse, right? So going to be on the other uh, side of the, of at least the moods that we are going to try to <laughs> All I can tell you is that um, humans have a negativity bias, so your book will certainly sell more than, than mine. <laughs> well, that'd be great. I'm not gonna lie; I would be very happy with that. Um, no, but I'm very happy to have talked to you. I'm very happy that you uh, decided to write this book. I enjoyed it a lot. I am sure that uh, the international audience is going to enjoy it. It's a, a great perspective of the world that indeed uh, teaches us also a lot about Africa and, and I think that there's, there's not much uh, out there that, that can do that so I, I highly recommend the book um, and again I'm very happy to have talked to you I hope to, to visit you soon so you can take me on a nice hike again great thanks Javier it was great to be here and thanks for the conversation <laughs>